Part three, chapter six of Life and Lillian Gish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolyn Lilliard. Life and Lillian Gish by Albert Bigelow Payne. Part three, chapter six The Scarlet Letter. Lillian had not found time to go to New York. Through no fault of hers, the production of La Bohème had been delayed, and there was not a moment to lose now. La Bohème was finished on Saturday, and the first shots of the Scarlet Letter were made the following Monday. She had agreed to do as many as six pictures, and she had two years to do them in. She was very anxious to fulfill her part of the contract. Her mother was with her. She had come out with her in May, but in September had gone back to London, where Dorothy was making Neil Gwynne for an English company. Now again she was back, vainly, unwisely, trying to share herself with both daughters. In January, Lillian had taken Mrs. Pickford's house at Santa Monica, directly on the beach. She believed it would be better for her mother— not always warm, but there was nearly always sunshine, and the air was good. Every morning Lillian went into the sea. The water was cold, but by six she had put on her bathing suit and plunged in. A dip, then out again, a race to the house, a cup of hot water that Nellie, the maid, had ready. Then quickly into a little roadster, and away took the Culver City lot— a brisk twenty-minute drive. Nellie there prepared breakfast while her mistress was dressing and making up. In her little corner of Beacom Terrace, the den, as she calls it, overlooking the East River, where a procession of water traffic moves always up and down, stout, saucy tugs with square-nosed barges, or droopy, submissive schooners in tow, swift sound steamers, smudgy freighters, private yachts, very romantic and expensive-looking, all the motley parade of the Marine Register. Lillian not so long ago told of the making of the Scarlet Letter. She said, It was while we were making La Bohème that I worked with Frances Marion on the story. Hawthorne's Hester Prynne appealed to me, and I thought the story had great picture possibilities. There was one objection. The church would oppose it, the Protestant Church, especially the Methodist. The Scarlet Letter was one of a list of prescribed books, forbidden for picture use. I took the matter up with Will Hayes and prominent members of the clergy. Why should the Church prohibit a great classic like that? When I told them how I proposed to present it, they gave their sanction. When they saw the picture, by and by, they recommended it. My idea was to present Hester as the victim of hard circumstance, swept off her feet by love. Of course, that was what she was, but her innate innocent must be apparent. I said, I believe in the scarlet letter, if we can get the right man for Dimsdale, the minister. We considered several, but none would do. One day, Louis B. Mayer, business head of the Metro, said to me, I think I have found the minister for your scarlet letter. Mayer had brought over Greta Garbo, and I had faith in him. 
garbo had done a picture of gusta berling in sweden with lars hansen and the metro had brought over a print of it go into the projection room and have them run it for you said mayer if you like hansen for the part we'll bring him over the moment lars hansen appeared on the screen i knew he was the man we wanted and i knew that we must have a swedish director the swedish people are closer to what our pilgrims were or what we consider them to have been than our present-day americans irving thalberg selected victor seastrom a splendid choice he got the spirit of the story exactly and was himself a fine actor the finest that ever directed me i never worked with anyone i liked better than seastrom he was scandinavian thorough and prompt if mr seastrom said we would start at eight or half past the camera was ready at that time and so were we his direction was a great education for me in a sense i went through the swedish school of acting i had got rather close to the italian school in italy watching them at their theatres and from being associated with those who were with us in the white sister and romola the italian school is one of elaboration the swedish is one of repression mr vidor's method of the american school if there is such a thing leaned to self-expression which has its advantages we had some of the people used in la bohème carl dane for one who except for the brief scene where a scrap of my forbidden laundry creates a situation and finally flares out on a currant bush furnished about all the comedy of that too sad picture henry b walthall with whom i had played so often in the old griffith days was engaged to do prynne hester's husband in the old days he had been taller than i was i was amazed now to find it the other way about i had grown a good deal in the ten or eleven years since then i suppose exercise open air health and proper food had been responsible joyce code my little girl in the play was a sweet child and a clever little actress i became much attached to her work on the scarlet letter went off smoothly until we were within two weeks of the end then one day in april i got a paralyzing cable from dorothy in london dorothy had been over for a brief visit during the winter and mother had presently followed her back to london she had not wanted to go not really she had not been well for years commuting back and forth across six thousand miles trying to be with both of us had been too much for her that last time she would not let me go to the train with her dorothy's cable said that she was dying i cabled and got the latest news of her she had had a stroke i said i would take the first ship i could get from new york i found that by leaving los angeles in three days i could catch the majestic out of new york which would put me in london the last day of april it was the fifteenth that she had been struck down at the studio seastrom said that by working day and night we could do the remaining two weeks on the picture in the three days i had left i asked the company if they would stay with me through it and every one said yes they were all so fine we didn't waste a moment and during those three days and nights there was very little sleep for anyone i remember scarcely anything of the details for of course i had mother on my mind too 
when the last scene was shot i made a rush for the train without stopping to change from my costume mr mayer and mr thalberg got special police on motorcycles to escort me and clear the way so that i could work to the last moment and still get on the train twelve days later i was in london characteristically lillian says nothing of that trip across land and sea miss moore less reticent writes i shall always remember the kindness and sympathy shown her during those long wearisome days on the train the little catholic girl at albuquerque who somehow or other managed to find her way to our compartment and press into lillian's hand a little silver cross which she said had been specially blessed and would surely bring an answer to her prayers for her mother at topeka kansas when the train pulled in we noticed that the platform was jammed from end to end with people we supposed that they must have come to welcome someone and pulled down the blinds in the compartment to escape notice suddenly we heard raps on the window and calls for miss gish the conductor appeared smiling to say that all these people had come to see miss gish some of them had even driven a hundred miles for the purpose tired and heartsick as she was lillian went out on the platform of the train the moment she appeared a sudden silence fell on the crowd they just stood and looked at her then a woman held up a baby and asked her to touch it for luck that broke up the formality they crowded round her expressing their sympathy and good wishes and they were still in the midst of it when the train pulled out leaving them cheering and waving we arrived in new york on the morning of the day the majestic sailed when late that night we went on board the boat we found our stateroom filled with people all waiting to see lillian one pleasant young man with an ingratiating smile insisted upon bringing in his girlfriend to meet lillian who tired as she was still managed to smile at them in london lillian learned just what had happened dorothy had been out to a play and had come in quietly and slipped into bed without turning on the light mrs gish slept in the other twin bed presently dorothy felt something touch her she spoke softly but got no answer she felt the touch again and again no answer the third time she snapped on the light her mother could not speak all her right side was helpless fortunately dorothy's bed had been at her left with lillian's arrival mrs gish improved only the day before she had not been expected to live she seemed to recognize her her eyes grew large every paper had displayed in headlines lillian's race across the world to her mother's bedside and the english are a kindly people noble and commoner alike came forward with offered help all ranks knew and loved her cards flowers gifts poured in what was to be done next lillian must return to california or cancel her contract what must she what could she do miss moore tells what happened one night somebody suggested going to a famous little restaurant in the tottenham court road district for dinner so dorothy lillian and i got into a taxi and drove to it three very forlorn females it was over that dinner that lillian came to what seemed at first her preposterous decision to take her mother back with her to california 
but as usual she carried her point and within a week mrs gish with a good english doctor and nurse in attendance lillian and i were all aboard the mauritania en route for new york mrs gish bore the journey much better than we had expected and the days passed quickly the morning we arrived at quarantine lillian and i were sitting up in bed eating breakfast when our stewardess rushed in looking quite alarmed to warn us to bolt all the doors as our stateroom was shortly to be stormed by a mob of reporters lillian herself told of the hectic overland journey in new york i chartered a private car and took mother to hollywood i was no longer so poor and if ever there was a time when i was thankful for money it was then across the blazing southern desert we had tubs of ice with fans going over them night and day the car was cool and the change or the thought that she was going back to california which she always loved was good for mother when we reached california instead of being on her back she was sitting up but she could not speak she knew all that we said to her but she could not answer and she could no longer read we were told that this condition might last three to six months that was five years ago she has improved a great deal she can walk a little but most of her right side is helpless and her words are very limited at santa monica we lived in mrs pickford's house until september then moved up to the beautiful millbank place on the cliff with a lovely garden and all away from the dampness and the sound of the waves which made mother nervous on her birthday september sixteen she seemed suddenly to pick up and we felt there was a chance for her to get well she does not suffer but must get very tired of always being obliged to sit or lie down but she is sweet and patient the nurse and i read to her and she enjoys working the picture puzzles of which she has always a supply she likes motion picture magazines she cannot read them but she loves the illustrations many of them of people she knows and always if the name gish is on any printed page she can find it the scarlet letter had its premiere in august nineteen twenty six at the central theatre new york city the evening sun next day among other things said miss gish for the first time in the memory of the oldest inhabitant of the cinema palaces plays a mature woman a woman of depth of feeling and wisdom and noble spirit she is not hawthorne's hester prynne but she is yours and mine and she makes the scarlet letter worth a visit the sun man's notice was a fair sample of other printed opinions at home and abroad critics who were anxious to show that they were familiar with hawthorne sometimes worked themselves up over the departure from the original story and sometimes took it out on Lillian and Lars Hansen, but generally they had only good things to say of the acting of these two, of little Joyce Code and the others, and of Seastrom's fine direction. Seastrom had created New England atmosphere on a Culver City lot, a fact not always suspected. 
Lillian had hoped that some of the scenes might really be made in New England, but Seastrom's imagination had served as well, perhaps better. No fault was found here. Indeed, very little anywhere. Critics who went prepared to do their worst forgot all about it when they saw Lillian in her little Puritan cap, her expressive back in its little Puritan waist, and especially when she sat in the stalks, for running and playing on ye Sabbath, leaning feverishly out to drink from the cup of cold water brought her by the conscience-stricken minister. One hardened critic wrote, I retire from the field with tears in my eyes and rage in my heart, as becomes a cynic betrayed and undone. To consider her critically is beyond my powers. She simply annihilates the instinct. Of this much, I am quite sure. She is a great, a very great artist, and by far the most appealing and human little figure appearing on the screen today, and the loveliest. Three or four years ago, in a big barn of a theater in southern France, the writer of these pages first saw The Scarlet Letter and went home in a daze, waking up now and then to damn his Puritan ancestors. In the seat next his had sat a small, intense Frenchwoman, who, at one point, had said tearfully to her companion, Regardez, Leontine, regardez son pauvre petitos. Look, Leontine, look at her poor little back. And just now I read a paragraph which said, Lillian Gish can convey more pathos with her back than any other actress with all her features. I agree with that, and I am not going by my first impression. I have seen the picture again, very recently, with Lillian in the New York Metro-Goldwyn projection room. Association had destroyed none of the illusion. The effect was the same, heightened. We left the crash and glare of Ninth Avenue for the comparative seclusion of a cab. Lillian said, presently, I was too immature to play that part. She was a woman. I looked just like a child. You looked young, certainly, but not too young for Hester. That Hester. Of course, the real Hester, supposing there ever was one, was not at all your Hester. She was less, more, what the others were. She assented a little doubtfully. I stumbled on. If I might offer a humble opinion, you did not turn Lillian Gish into Hester Prynne. You turned Hester Prynne into something, well, something more exquisite. Some of the critics didn't think so. They said, I know the things they said. I have those scrapbooks where you carefully preserved all the worst ones. A critic, a young critic, does not think he is doing his duty unless he puts a little sting into what he writes. The cup he offers must have its drop of hemlock, even when he proffers it on bended knee. La Boheme and the Scarlet Letter were popular abroad. From Europe, from the farthest east, the letters came. Oriental young men, in exquisite calligraphy and quaint phrase, told her how she was adored, begged for a photograph, a written line. Some suggested pictures they hoped she would do. Joan of Arc among them. End of Part 3, Chapter 6